Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Startup Equity Matters, a podcast about how to create value from startup equity. Uh, We're going to unpack stories uh, from capital raising, team equity, uh, ownership, culture, and exits and stuff like that. And today's topic is creating wealth through startup-focused family office. So yeah, I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, They've had a career in innovation, a multitude of leadership roles, and now the CEO of a tremendous family office, uh, Euphemia, that's backing the best investors and founders out there. Uh, Also, full disclosure, uh, Euphemia is a cake investor. Um, Thanks for the support. Uh, I've enjoyed working um, with Judy over the years and and seeing her awesome leadership and really grateful um, to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Judy Anderson Firth. Thank you, Jason. It's uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Like, cake is just such an awesome business, and when when we saw the opportunity to invest come up last year, like it was an absolute no brainer. We're like, how can we get in? Like, what's the maximum check we can put in? And there was limited allocation <laughs> at the time. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a joy to to be a part of the journey. So, thanks for having me. I absolutely love hearing that. And there's a lesson out there for all of you founders. Find people that care about your mission, that are aligned, you know, with your mission, with the problems that you're trying to solve. And life just keeps getting uh, better and better. So thanks. Thanks a lot for that. Um, So look, thanks again for joining us as well. Uh, Tell us a bit about Euphemia. Uh, What's your vision and, and mission? Yeah, so Euphemia is the family office for Aussie fintech entrepreneur and investor Dom Pin. Uh, Dom is most well known for being the co-founder of Up, which is Australia's most loved digital bank, uh, which sold to Bendigo and Adelaide Banking Group at the end of 2021. Um, very popular with under 35s. Um, if there are any upsiders out there, like shout out to you. It's like such a great, great product um, for financial literacy and well-being. Um, but prior to that, Dom, you know, he's a entrepreneur of 20 years. Oh, you've got some. I just, I just got this the other day, my new card. Even though I'm oh, a tad so over 35, I'm not going to tell you exactly how old. I, I, I'm still a, a, what are we called? Up, up, Upsiders. You're up an upsider. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, it's a, it's an awesome business for like financial wellness. Seriously, like I became an upsider mm-hmm. after discovering Up at the Pause um, Fest in, in Melbourne a few years ago. But um, Up aside, it's an incredible business. So um, amazing branding. Like, how do you make banking actually feel fun and like you know, really cares about you? All the big banks kind of they they say all the right things, but it never kind of feels right. But this actually feels like it. You know, it was such a great such a great mission and super fun. Yeah, and beyond the branding, like to to make it practical for those who haven't discovered up before, um, mm. like for example, one of their features is something called Maybuy, um, which is a bit of a sort of reaction to the buy now pay later, um, you know, trend in the in the financial services sector, particularly for young people. And um, so, rather than you know using a buy now pay later system, you can use Maybuy, um, where if you're in the shopping cart looking for a new pair of sneakers or a new set of I don't know, you want a new TV or whatever it is that you want to be buying. Um, rather than doing it like an afterpay model, you can add it to your Maybuy in your Up app and then you can actually save up towards buying that product. And so it mm. basically helps customers to buy things that they actually want with money that they actually have. Um, so just like one example of like some of the great features that they've got, there's heaps more, but I won't bore you no. with them all. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean about, you know, a great brand has a product that matches, you know, what it says on the front and that's that's what I love um super innovative and really caring about the customer and solving real problems so 
you know, huge effort there. And so that was, you know, that was a big part of the establishment of Euphemia, I suppose. Um, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, Euphemia is the family office of Dom and, um, you know, together we manage a, a global investment portfolio of about $70 million, uh, and we invest uh, across four main uh, verticals. So we invest in uh, fintechs to try and help fix money, uh, climate tech to try and help fix the planet, uh, women-led startups or really any founder from a disadvantaged background who hasn't had equal access to opportunity, and then startup infrastructure, which is kind of like a niche corner of B2B SaaS, where you're a high-growth tech company whose customer is a high-growth tech company, a la Cake. Um, and so that's really the types of companies we invest in. We're typically investing in pre-seed to Series A when we're investing directly in a company, uh, but we also invest in funds. We're invested in over 20 funds, both here and abroad, across pre-seed up to private equity. Um, and more broadly than the venture portfolio, the family office group at Euphemia, we have a um, property portfolio, a little bit of commercial, a little bit of residential, um, a share portfolio, which is mostly listed tech stocks and a foundation to help people in need. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the business of Euphemia. And like we really are here to make awesome make awesome. Uh, we are trying to uplift the entire Australian startup ecosystem to help create more family offices that look and feel like Euphemia, like what could a new first generation family office created from tech wealth look like? Um, because Dom's an entrepreneur of 20 years of hard knocks. He's most well known for being the UP co-founder, but before that he had <laughs> pin payments, clear, like so many. He's lived and worked in Silicon Valley, London, Singapore, like the list goes on. And we've both worked in entrepreneurship and tech our whole careers. So uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting time to be Euphemia. Uh, it's a wonderful business. Um, we're mega aligned on on mission and, and vision around creating innovation, entrepreneurship, and driving the Australian ecosystem forward. So, very grateful to be having you on our side and and leading the way. Um, you mentioned a bit about your background. I'm I'm excited to dive into that in a tick. But before we do that, you know, as a CEO, what are the big th- you know big three things you're working on at the moment? Um, it's always interesting to hear what people are really focused on. Yeah, um, I'll start with an exciting one and then I'll slide a boring one in the middle and then finish with an exciting one. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, nah, the boring, exciting sandwich. Um, the <laughs> exciting one is uh, we're helping a lot of our companies that we've already invested in. So we've got over 50 uh, direct investments now within the portfolio across those four verticals that I just mentioned. And so uh, Dom and I are spending a lot of time working with the founders and the executives within those teams, looking at their next capital raise um, and like playing a bit of a like sort of strategic advisor role there on like what does that rounding to look like? How do we set it up for success? Who should participate? What should a lead look like? What should the price look like? You know, like s- some of those kind of things. So working on a little bit of cap raising strategy. Cool. Um, one of the boring things is we're just setting up some boring tax compliance across the group. Um, there's about a dozen entities in the Euphemia group and they all have their own PL and balance sheet and doesn't, tax. Doesn't, so... It doesn't get better than uh, multi-entity tax planning. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. It's very that kind important. Of very important. Time of year. It is very important. It's that time of year. Um, obviously, I don't have to do everything. Um, we mm. have fantastic accountants and tax advisors, but it mm. is my job to make sure that it gets done. Uh, and the last exciting thing is just the time of year. Like we actually just get to celebrate everyone's accomplishments. It's a really difficult, um, it's been a challenging year for everyone. You know, mm. the markets span on a dime. Everyone had to recalibrate. You know, we've still got a lot of companies like only now just sort of refining their feet um, after the year that it's been. 
And so we're actually spending a bit of time, you know, it's the 1st of December today, not to date this podcast, but it's, you know, mm. it's a time for celebration. So we're spending a bit of time with founders just looking backwards and, yeah, celebrating their accomplishments. Love it. Yeah, I'm sure some founders are super hard on themselves, especially in a year like this year. So we all need to get around each other and make sure that we acknowledge all the progress that's been made. I think a few times throughout the cake journey, you know, you're just grinding away, grinding away. And when you do take time to look back across the whole year, you can be pretty shocked how much has been achieved. So yeah, good good yeah. shout out. Yeah. Like every startup should create their own Spotify version of like the 2023 wrapped or whatever year you might do it for. Like, yeah, yeah necessary. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So how did you get into innovation uh, in, in the first place? Looking at your LinkedIn, looks like you were kind of born into it. Um, what's the origin story of of your passion, you know, for, for innovation, Judy? It does feel like I was set up to have a career in tech and entrepreneurship, you yep. know, in innovation my whole life. My, my dad was a railway engineer and my mum was a primary school, like creative arts teacher. So on one side, a super linear dude and a super creative mum. The combination of the two just, yeah, totally set me up to be fascinated with problem solving, um, but not just solving a problem, like convincing other people that it worked. So, um, you know, my dad's idea of playtime was going to a garage sale, buying a computer, bringing it home. We'd pull it apart. We'd have to put it back together again, make sure that oh, it worked. Um, really well. That kind of, yeah, yeah. So very much set up. Um, and then in, in high school, you know, it was very obvious, like the subjects that were easy were business and literature, which are all about like the answer is whatever you can convince someone the answer is, um, <laughs> as opposed to what the black and white science tells you. Um, not that I'm not a lover of science. Uh, and uh, I studied entrepreneurship at university. So I always wanted to invent things that would change people's lives. Like I was always tinkering around, like, you know, my mom would always lose her glasses. And so, you know, I entered an invention <laughs> competition in primary school and I was like, I'm totally going to solve that problem. My mom is always interrupting my playtime with my sister to help her find her glasses. So I went down <laughs> to the hardware store, bought a little tracking device, soldered it on to her glasses frame. <laughs> And then I put a finder button on her car keys. And so anytime she lost her glasses, she could just press this button and go off and find her car keys. And, you know, it was wow. awesome. I ended up winning this competition, but then she lost the car keys a week later. So <laughs> it didn't end up being as very good. But like that sense of like fashion, like invention and being fascinated with that, I've, I've always had that as part of my DNA. Yeah, it's very hard to account for all user error when you're innovating. <laughs> yes, <laughs> prime example of that learning. <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, right from a very early age, you just had the spirit and and um, you had that problem solving attitude. Amazing. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What are um what are a few of the highlights and, and you know maybe a couple of inflection points along the way? Because I think you know before Euphemia, you know CEO of a pretty major you know industry group here in you know and and quite a few cool leadership roles. I, I saw you were a keynote speaker, um, you know, quite a few years ago, early on in your career. So were there a couple of a couple of inflection points along the way that you, you could share that were kind of important? Yeah, definitely a few. Um, you know, and as they say, like hindsight's always twenty twenty. You can find what those moments are when you look back. It's a lot harder to know mm. when you're in them. Yeah. Um, so true. But what they all what they all kind of have in common is that they all felt wildly uncomfortable <laughs> at the time. Um, so my first one, you know, was when I was um, at Deloitte very early in my career. I'd finished my studies in entrepreneurship. 
And um, I couldn't get a job, ironically, because entrepreneurship was a really unemployable degree to have chosen. And you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't find a job. It was like, you know, a recession was in flight and um, I really was struggling. And, um, and, and so I ended up taking a stint, you know, selling um, toilets at Reese Bathroom Life, believe it or not, um, just, you know, finding any job, you know, to pay the bills. And uh, I was very persistent to get this job at Deloitte because I wanted to learn how innovation was done at the top end of town, like how do really big companies innovate and keep disrupting? Like how mm. is that done in practice? I want to be a part of that. And so I'd applied for three different jobs uh, in um, various sort of innovation and tech roles at Deloitte and got rejected three times. Um, and then the last time uh, I finally like nailed the perfect role, um, which was in the innovation team there, working for the chief strategy officer to help um, every service line within the business to create new products and services for clients. And whilst it felt really uncomfortable to keep pursuing what I wanted, because everyone just kept telling me that, you know, the answer was no, you know, I just didn't take <laughs> no for an answer. Um, and so I was really glad that I persisted because, you know, being in that role really set me up for success because it was my job to basically train the whole organization in design thinking. We br brought the D school out from Stanford university. And so I got like front row seat, alongside all of the other partners in the business at a very young age on like how to do business and how to innovate. It was incredible. Um, another big inflection point was taking a risk and leaving that all behind and going to a niche consultancy. I then went to a boutique firm called Inventium uh, that used organizational psychology, neuroscience and management science that taught large companies like Deloitte and ASX 250 style to innovate and use um, use those methodologies like Lean Startup methodology, Clayton Christensen's, you know, disruptors, innovators, dilemma, et cetera. Um, but again, another big inflection point there, um, several years later, I was running our Silicon Valley tour where we would take our APAC exec clients over to the Valley and we'd, you know, show them what innovation looked like in practice. Um, and one of the rooms I was in was with Alan Blue from, he's a co-founder of LinkedIn, former PayPal co-founder, part of the PayPal mafia. Oh, wow. And I was just, yeah, epic. And I was sitting there listening to him talk and the way that he talked about the world, his vision was so much bigger than anything I'd heard from any of my clients in the last five years. And I just thought I'm in the wrong place. Like I thought, I thought I could make the biggest impact at the biggest end of town, but actually I've got it all wrong. It's actually at the bottom end of town. Like entrepreneurs and founders are achieving so much more with so much less. And they're just exciting to be around. It's like infectious, like the energy yeah. and the progress and how fast they moved. I was like, oh, I got to quit my job. I got to find where the founders are. Like, you know, how can I take everything I've learned in my, you know, corporate innovation career and apply that to the startup sector and help? Um, and that led me to Startup Vic. So um, that was my previous role before teaming up with Dom um, to, to run Euphemia. So um, Startup Victoria, which was now, now known as the Startup Network, is Australia's largest startup community with over 60,000 people in the network. And so my job for many years has been to help founders go from I've got a great new idea to an exit and everything in between, you know, bootstrapped, venture-backed, fast growth, slow growth, B2B, B2C. Um, I've kind of seen it all and worked with thousands of founders um, and yeah, I've definitely found my place. Um, you can't kick me out of the sector. I love it so much. No, your passion and, and the fun and the enjoyment that you take from your role is really obvious when working with you. And I have had the same realization since I got into innovation, just being around all the, the passion, positivity and, and drive to, you know, to change the world is a very fortunate place to get to spend, you know, your working hours. So yeah, I totally get you there. Mm -hmm. um, right. So we're going to switch now and talk a bit about 
equity. You know, it's an equity related pod. And I'm I love what we're going to do today because, you know, we haven't really talked equity for family offices on the podcast so far. And we've got some really unique and insightful, you know, things to talk about, which is great. Um, so to kick us off, you were telling me earlier that you want to create a lot of, you want to help create a lot of euphemias. So how do we do that? And how do people make money from family office? Hey, how are we going to do it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for us, like we're investing a significant portion of like funds under management into the venture sector. So startups and funds. And the reason why we're doing that, we're not actually setting out to create a multi-generational family office where, you know, future generations are inheriting a nice big pile of cash to do whatever they want with it. Like this is something where we're giving back to the next generation um, of the startup ecosystem in Australia. And we want to see more entrepreneurs successful, more employees and early investors of these businesses successful because, you know, more begets more. Like the more success we have from the sector, the more companies that are created, the more technologies that get progressed, the more value that's created for society. And we can actually start to solve some of these big problems like climate tech, you know, like like the financial sector and its inequality. Like there are so many big problems to solve and we're totally biased towards like the combination of technology and humans using being used to solve those problems. So um, yeah, our goal, you know, um, beyond the actual work we're doing today is that by receiving investment from Euphemia, um, a company will succeed and they will become very wealthy and they can create their own family office and they will in turn invest back into the Australian startup sector to help create more uh, more of the companies that they build. That's our, that's our goal. That's what we'd like to see. Yeah, so cool. So you're only going to um, continue to be successful if we're all successful. So that seems ultra aligned <laughs> yeah exactly like if if no one if no one you know like money is is a is a significant marker of value in our economy and if no one's making money mm. then there's a pretty strong argument that we're not actually creating the value that we set out to um or we're not capturing it so yeah definitely we want to see founders become wealthy off the back of the value that they're creating for society um and then do something good with that wealth yeah i love it and we're already seeing some of that coming through aren't we i mean to setting up a family office requires a certain amount of wealth so that's you know only the most successful exits are going to probably allow you to set up your own family office but I think we're seeing, you know, in Australia, probably the second and third wave, second, maybe, maybe some third wave coming through now from an investment standpoint, certainly some family offices. I mean, I think if you go back even 10 years, there wouldn't have even really been any tech family offices, um, maybe 15 years. And but we're really starting to see them proliferate. And I think there's so much more opportunity um, in this space. So really exciting to see. I suppose I, I'd never heard of anybody really trying to provide leadership in this space. I only found this out, you know, earlier when we were talking. I think it's just such a cool way to to see the world. Yeah, thank you. I mean, but it's by design, you know. Like when when Dom and I were first um, were first sort of you know workshopping strategy and you know like our mission, our vision, our values, you know, like what success looks like. You know, we took a look at the competitive landscape as you do, and and we just you know, having lived and worked in the sector for so long, you know, the tip, like typically a family office is opaque, you know, by design, hard to mm. find, you don't really know what they invest in. And if they do have a website, it might showcase some portfolio companies. It might tell you about its thesis, but it's kind of hard to find the front door. Um, yeah. 
And they'll have you know, like a very just... small fraction of their wealth allocated to venture and they'll be coming in and out. That's they right. They won't really understand it. They probably don't have any dedicated team members that even really know how to do it. So you've got like yeah. property or fixed interest investors then making venture yeah. decisions. And of course, they're always too risk averse to even yeah. invest. So yeah. this, I've definitely seen the wrong way to do it uh, a couple yeah. of times in my career. <laughs> and look, let's, let's let's be real. Like I'm not saying the way that we're doing it is the right way to do it. There are a lot of very wealthy people who would look at us and say, you're crazy because, you know, <laughs> if like our, we work with LGT Cresto and, um, you know, they're sort of like our wealth advisors and, um, you know, a normal pie chart of asset allocation, you know, mm. typically one of their clients would maybe have like 20%, this little thin slice allocated to alternatives, which is like everything in venture, both not just direct investments, but the mm. funds. If you're investing in Airtree, Blackbird, Square Peg, any, any mid-market or early stage funds, it's all in that one bucket. Mm. Um, and Euphemia's is like 80% plus. And mm. so they look at us like we're crazy because you have to have a high risk appetite, you know, mm. but it's also high return potential. But we believe that we would be wasting an absolute advantage that we have, which is our networks within the sector and access to unique deal flow and also our ability to do great due diligence because we've built companies before, we've managed companies before, um, and we know what it takes to build a great business. So, And we're playing in the fields where we think we have an unfair advantage, fintech, climate tech, women-led and startup infrastructure. So we're comfortable mm -hmm. taking that risk, but yeah, yeah, others might call us crazy. <laughs> I can totally appreciate that. There's more than one way. Um, you know, to do everything and, and no one really knows, you know, the, the right way, in inverted commas. Um, yeah, no, awesome. Well, look, congrats. So we're creating wealth from family offices and you're only creating wealth if the industry succeeds, your portfolio succeed. Um, right. So, you know, and I suppose the historical returns on on good quality, you know, venture investing is really quite good. So yeah. um, as long as you keep yourself in the top, you know, the top quartile, everybody's winning, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing. You have to be good. Um, lucky for yeah. me, um, Dom's been an active angel investor for over a decade. So mm -hmm. whilst Euphemia is new, like Dom's been investing and, in, you know, some of his early investments include Afterpay, which was Australia's most successful um, exit, $39 billion, uh, which was, uh, that wasn't Dom's portion, but that was the, the overall sale price. Um, and, uh, you know, other, you know, he was in Twitter early, um, which was acquired by Elon Musk not too long ago. Like there are some, like Spreedly, which is a, a US um, fintech unicorn. Um, like he's got some amazing early stage um, investments and he's seen some great IRR from his earlier portfolio. So, Lucky for me, we're building on a really great stack to start with. Mm. Um, and the other advantage being a family office is we're not on the same time horizon for returns that a typical VC fund would be. We're mm. not bound by like a sort of 10-year timescale. We can think in multiple decades, which gives us an advantage as well. Yeah, cool. Hey, you'll have to uh, let me in on these good deals uh, when you're looking at them as well, okay? <laughs> yeah, we're funny enough. We've got one coming up next year. You might know the company. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay. So then, you know, just say people out there looking to, you know, set up a family office or, um, you know, maybe they already have a family office and they're thinking about how to transition a proportion of their wealth into, um, you know, into venture and, or I suppose they could be looking to try and attract, you know, retain and engage a really high quality team. You know, at Cape, we're very passionate about employee equity or team equity, ESOP it's sometimes called. In a family office structure, the family office structure that I've seen previously, I don't know how I would have ever done it. Um, mm. So I'd love to, you know, for you to share 
how you're tackling that at Euphemia, you know, because it's kind of about rewarding and incentivizing people, you know, bringing them on the journey, um, keeping the team together over a long period, making sure that, um, you know, I know in startup land, you know, you're all building this company together and you want to make sure that everybody's really winning, you know, at the end of the day. How, how are you tackling it at Euphemia? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, um, you know, as I said before, we don't have just like one company, you know, that we can offer some skin in the game for, right, for for employees and advisors or, you know, but we definitely want people to share in the upside, you know, like if we're winning, we want the people that helped us win to win as well, you know, so totally aligned with Case philosophy around, you know, making sure that everyone gets reward and, and recognised um, for the value that they're creating. So for us, we basically had to create our own version. So um, across across the Euphemia group, you know, we've got about a dozen entities. Some of them are focused on venture. Some of them are focused on property. Some are fo- focused on listed equities and some are focused on foundation activities and some other personal um, activities. So, you know, we had to look at like where across the group is the most value being created and where does it make sense? Like, so we actually had to look at what asset classes do we want to include? Like, do we want to include property? Do we want to include equities? Do we want to include venture? What makes sense? Um, And we came to the conclusion that the answer is it depends. It depends on who the person is and it depends on what they're working on. Um, So already right off the bat, it's like, okay, whatever we build needs to be flexible enough to work for property and work for venture and work for listed equity. So it has to be super flexible. Um, And then the question became, well, what about time? Like when is someone coming on board? Like we're a family office we're thinking in decades. So like if you're working with Euphemia, you're probably working with us for quite some time. Like, you know, this is, it's 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 not just something where we're expecting tenure to be like, you know, a few years, like, you know, you're here, like, like Dom and I have committed to each other for a decade at least, you know, like that's the time you need to really work this strategy to fruition and, and create and see, see if we can deliver on it. So, you know, we need it to make sense over time. Um, and so, if we've got different people joining us along, you know, this multi-decade journey, how do we make it fair? Like, how do we make it fair when someone comes in from day one? How do we make it fair when someone comes in in a couple of years' time? How do we make it fair if someone comes in at year 10 and we still got 10 to go? Like, how do we make that work? Because every person is sort of building on the shoulders of the person that came before. So it has to make sense in terms of when someone starts. Um And then the last part is it has to be generous, you know, like some core principles, like we want it to be generous um, and we wanted it also to reflect best practice because anything that we do, um, we want to be able to set an example for our portfolio companies and funds. So whatever we do, we want them to to, to follow our lead. So um, with those principles in mind, we basically scoured like what do other family offices do? What do other funds do? What do the best companies do? Um, we just spent a lot of time researching um, to see if there was anything out there that would make sense for us. The bad news for us is that there wasn't, so we kind of had to build something. Um, but we were able to sort of take the best bits of what we found in market. So, you know, we were able to take the best bits of what we see in great ESOP plans, right? Like good lever provisions, bad lever provisions, what sort of commercials, you know, are typically like right in terms of how much as a percentage of overall, you know, um, success like makes sense to offer, um, what's generous, you know, on top of those standards. Um we were able to take the best of like partnership models from venture funds and, you know, what does carry look like? How is that carry earned or bought over time? 
Um, and so, yeah, we could basically take the best of industry standards. So it sort of looked like an ESOP, felt like an ESOP, but it's not an ESOP at all. <laughs> so um, we call it the uh, Euphemia Incentive Plan, which is a really boring name. Um, it probably needs a better name. But the incentive plan is basically um, it's basically a loan structure. So um, what we're trying to do is create or mimic actual ownership of an asset without creating any negative tax consequences for either party um, mm. or any sort of cash flow consequences for either party. So um, it's basically a loan structure where for every asset that it makes sense for you to have some ownership in, um, we as a group are loaning you a percentage um, and what that percentage is is like on a case-by-case basis, but overall we have a set um, percentage across the group, so it's about 20% um, is allocated. So similar to an ESOP, you'd find anything from 10 to 25, like we're at about 20% um, mm. overall for that pool of incentive plan. Uh, and then, you know, what your percentage is as an employee will re- be representative of what your value is. So similar to an ESOP, right? Like you just choose what's yeah. right to allocate to that person. Mm-hmm. Um and then for each asset, a new loan is created. So let's say, for example, we invested in a company called Cake and the Euphemia Group, um, this isn't the amount we invested in, this is just to keep a simple example. <laughs> you know, let's say we invested $100,000 into Cake. Um, that means 20% of that, so $20,000, gets allocated in terms of our cost base to the incentive plan. And so a loan is created for um, lots of little micro, let's say we've got two people, for example, in Mm -hmm. that um, incentive plan. That means there are now two $10,000 loans um, sitting against that. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that asset is, if that asset goes to zero, it's a it's a um, no recourse loan. Mm-hmm. So Euphemia is never going to come after an employee for ten grand, right? Like if it goes to zero, then that loan that loan um, is is not recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, if, however, that asset goes to let's say let's say a hundred thousand dollars turns, I mean this would be an awesome result. But let's say a hundred thousand dollars turns into a million, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden that ten k loan that you had as part of your Euphemia incentive plan is now worth. you have, you know, you you get the benefit of that asset going from 10 to 100. um, And what happens with the cost base of the loan is dealt with at the time of the the liquidity event. So that's how it's structured. So then you basically have a whole register. This is why we need great accountants. We have a whole register of um, these sort of uh, limited recourse loans set up across the group. And then in terms of... Cake isn't currently set up for that kind of thing, but it's innovative and maybe one day. It's a gigantic accounting legal workaround um, to try and create like best practice principles in a system that's ultimately flexible because it still also gives us um, enough like control and flexibility as a Euphemia group to to change circumstances. So, for example, like one of the one of the things we needed to cater for was like. What if we have, you know, how do we facilitate our own internal secondaries? You know, like a lot of the assets that we're buying are like seven to 15 year time horizon liquidity assets. Like they're not very liquid. You know, what if we have an employee who wants to put a deposit down for a house or I don't know, maybe there's a family emergency and they need to liquidate. So like maybe on paper, they're worth a million bucks, but, you know, they've got to wait at least another five or seven years until there's a liquidity event. You know, this gives us the ability to do internal secondary. So Euphemia could actually oh. buy back that asset um, and do an internal um, price purchase of that asset. So 
it's super flexible. It's pretty awesome. Um, but those contracts all have the same good labor, bad labor provisions that you would expect. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Oh, well, look, congratulations on solving that. It sounds like a bit of work, but, um, you know, based on what we do at Cake, we're so grateful when we hear of people working hard to, you know, reward and incentivize and build great teams over the long term. Um, so, yeah, nice work. I think that's the most complicated uh you know, system, I don't take that the wrong way. Like it was a complicated situation and, and you built an awesome outcome. Um, so oh, that's really great. Love it. Yeah. And the only, the only other um, little asterisk I put under it is like how we think about what's included, you know, because the group mm. has so many different things like, um, and this is where time really came into it. So um, for example, like if there was a, an asset that existed um, before your time, let's say, you know, you, you become a part of the Euphemia team in the future and there's already an asset which um, doesn't really require much servicing, you know, capital's already been called, you know, maybe we do some things with the like portfolio success activities from time to time, but, you know, there's not too much, you know, value being created ongoing then that would be excluded um but uh, if it's something that happened within your time then it would be included and so each employer each um advisor each person that has a plan has a different plan to the person next to them based on when they started and based on what they work on um so it's all a little bit of a unique yeah it's 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 definitely a lot of admin but it it gives us the things that we want around um generosity and flexibility yeah, it sounds like you need to update, you know, sort of be looking at that and updating the details, you know, a little bit from time to time. That's right. Yeah, definitely required. It's just part of our like bookkeeping process um, at this point. Yeah. Awesome. Very innovative. Well done. Um, and so moving on to our, our next really interesting piece. Uh, and thanks for doing this work, by the way, um, you know, having a chat with your portfolio and some of the founders and um, you know, bringing some insights from, you know, their journey on, you know, co-founder splits and co-founder equity and how that's worked and employee equity, you know, at the various startups. Um, yeah, super keen to um, hear a bit about what you learned. Mm, yeah. I mean, I was telling you earlier, like the, the one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to a handful of our portfolio founders was just to get a read on like, you know, are we starting to see best practice emerge in Australia yet? Like, are we starting to see like how consistent will these answers be? And even the exercise alone was interesting because for the most part, everyone had a total different story, um, which I think in itself is telling, right? That we haven't yet hit like saturation on ESOP being normal, being standard, you know, being market, like within Australia, we're not there yet. I thought that was interesting. Um, mm. You know, so we've got everything from, you know, founders who um, started their companies by going through an accelerator. And so everything was really easy, you know, like that's a that's an accelerator that pumps out dozens of companies a year. They've got templates, they've got standards, they've got rules, you know, so it's like they just had to sort of follow, you know, like the masses and, and sort of just like it was easy really, you know, didn't really have to think about it too much. Mm-hmm. And then you've got companies that are more like bootstrapped or independent for the majority of their early days and it was a lot more painful, um, you know, they kind of had to spend a lot more on legals. They weren't sure exactly what was right or they tried to get a little bit creative with certain terms, you know, but then they ended up biting them in the butt later, you know. So, um, yeah, there was no consistent theme. Um, but uh, in terms of co-founder equity, the one consistent thing I will say came out was most most founders um, still have equal equity at the start. Um, but there was a great insight from one of these companies uh, around reverse vesting of that equity and making sure you have your buybacks 
mm. uh, in place for when co-founder relationships dissolve um, and when a co-founder is no longer adding the value promised because you don't want to have a gigantic portion of vested equity sitting in a founder who's no longer, you know, building the business. Big red flag. Yeah. 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 So a lesson learned there. Yeah. Sweet. And then um, what about on the employee equity side? Any any sort of key insights? Obviously a fair bit of different stuff going on, but um, I guess anything stand out that, that's worth sharing? Yeah. The consistent theme for um, employee equity or like the lesson, you know, from a lot of these, and I spoke to about half a dozen, so it's not, you know, the single source of truth, but um, it was a good, I think, representative sample of a typical, you know, Australian early stage company. Um, and uh, the, the insight was basically they started their journey with their ESOPs being designed super employee friendly, like incredibly employee because they want to attract the best talent. They're an early stage startup. They don't have enough money, you know, mm. to really like offer highly competitive salaries. And so ESOPs are a great way to, you know, get people on board. And and typically these are employees that have never really had an ESOP before. So, um, you know, like they thought they were doing the right thing, you know, like being mm. super employee friendly. But a lot of those things were either wasted because no one even knew that they were so employee friendly. They didn't really understand what a win they were getting, you know, with these ESOP plans. Or it came back to bite them later when, you know, they would have levers and they weren't, you know, good levers. And then all of a sudden they had no legal mechanism through which to to to, to take back that equity. And it was equity walking out the door, not just with value not received, but in some instances you know, being eroded. So yeah, that those um that's the consistent theme there is that sort of, you know, trying to find the balance between mm. being company friendly and employee friendly. Um and off the back of having like the worst case scenario happen with an employee, which eventually happens, you know, with scale. Um, you know, you can make a bad hire. It's only a matter of time. Like, you know, so um, yeah, making sure your ESOP does have the right protections. And so those founders now who are at later stages do typically lean more towards having um, a company-friendly policy. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. We we have the standardised version in Cake and, you know, we built it over years. And um, I remember early on, uh, you know, just the more complexity and the more variability in the plan created so many problems for the founder, the company and more legal fees and employees never understood any of it anyway. So now we have the highly standardised one, which is, Employee friendly to a degree, but still protects the company. And and you sort of need to navigate that, um, you know, nice and in the middle there somewhere. And I I must say, even at Cake, you know, we have become a little bit more on the Cake protection side with the ESOP over the years, Um, even though we 100% have our team in mind. um, I think you can be a little bit, a little bit friendly with those terms and it doesn't necessarily help anybody. Um, So, yeah, interesting insight there. Um, yeah, and also like, but I think Cake's right to do that because, like, at the end of the day, do you, I've been waiting for the right moment to sneak in a cake fund. But do you want a bigger slice as an individual employee or as someone who's still remaining in the business after someone leaves? Do you want a big slice of a small pie, or do you want a small slice of a gigantic pie? Mm. And at the end of the day, like, as companies scale, as one person, there's only so much you can contribute to the end outcome, you know, of having a successful exit, a liquidity event. And so mm. at the end of the day, like the company having all the tools at its disposal to achieve that goal, including having equity up its sleeve to to give to new supporters, to new investors, to new partners, to new 
um, you know, value creating employees. Like it just makes sense. Like I would, I would rather see that equity get put back into the pool, you know, to, to have those who are still on the train, who still believe in the mission, who are still working hard at the goal, you know, help us all win. It, it makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hey, look, we nearly run out of time, uh, unfortunately, but um, that was that was really really cool. Um, love, you know, coming from a family office perspective and investor portfolio perspective. I think we unpacked some elements of creating wealth from startups that we haven't yet done on the pod. So really grateful for that, Judy. Thanks heaps. And, you know, we almost always finish with health and mental health and, you know, our creative, healthy lifestyle at Cake, we believe, is a, a huge part of why we're building a great company uh, based on our, our great team. Um, and, you know, you actually have a bit of experience um, in this space. Yeah, it'd be great to hear your insights, um, you know, on health and mental health as it helps yeah. innovators. Yeah, totally. Happy to talk about it. Um before I get on my soapbox about mental health and well-being, one last quick thing I do want to share from um, the Euphemia portfolio that I thought was quite useful mm. um, is how founders thought about advisor equity. Um, and it's really common, I think, to have like advisors pitch for equity. Um, and the theme that came through was that it very rarely was something that um, founders would look to do because um, your business changes so quickly that mm. it's quite rare. Like by the time you're finished negotiating, you know, a, an advisor equity agreement, that problem is no longer relevant. You've probably already solved it or you've pivoted out of it or like, you know, so it's, it's pretty rare to find an advisor that will be relevant to you for seven years and actually earn that equity, um, even if it's being vested. And so it's a very expensive in the long run way to pay for advice, especially mm. when there's a lot of free advice out there from peer-to-peer -peer mm. support programs, the startup network, other founders, investors. So there's a bit of a cautionary tale there mm. uh, on advisor equity coming out of the portfolio. So I just thought I'd share that. Um, but on the founder health and, and wellbeing side, yeah, um, during my time at Startup Victoria, LaunchVic, the state government um, startup agency, uh, commissioned us to write a report um, sort of detailing the state of affairs of, you know, founder mental health and wellbeing um, in the Victorian startup economy. And, uh, yeah, I got to sit down and interview all sorts of founders from all sorts of walks of life and just, like, understand their journey. Um, and one of the main things that has still stuck with me um, from that piece of research is how lonely it is to be a founder. It's a really hard job. You're so alone. Don't set Even... me off. Don't set me uh... off. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though, like you'll understand it. Like even if you have co-founders, mm. the type of problems that you're solving are massive, are complicated, are probably something you've never solved before and have massive consequences. And it's a huge burden to be the person who has to find the answer, believe in the answer, communicate the answer, deal with the fallout. The con it's a huge burden. And so, and often those kind of problems, like they're confidential in nature, you can't talk to, you know, your partner, your wife, your friends about them, and you've got no one to like, talk to. Even still from my experience, no one understands what you're doing. Like they just sort of look at you yeah. like you're an alien when you say like you're a startup founder or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then even yeah. and then every every month, every three months, the all the problems are brand new. Like you're almost never solving yeah. the same problem twice. That's another big part of it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like what I would like to see more in like, I guess, like the culture, you know, of mm -hmm. like this sector is mm -hmm. um, 
like founder to founder um, stuff because, you know, like you can, like I think that's a cohort that gets it, right? So, what you know, like find your little group, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's down at the local pub or, you know, whatever it might be, like just find like three to four other founders at a similar growth stage to you solving similar kind of problems or maybe one or two stages ahead that you can in a confidential environment. Just like they don't even actually have to help you solve the problem. You just need to listen. And like, you know, you just need to process like a lot of people like think by processing and talking. So it'd be great to see a bit more of that founder to founder stuff happen in Australia. Yeah. And then the second, the second thing that really stuck with me on this topic is um, like how we approach failure in the startup sector. And I know this isn't a new topic. Lots of people talk about it, how we're not, you know, we're not cool with failure, et cetera. But um, for founders in particular, there's so much of your personal identity wrapped up in your business and so when your business fails it feels like a personal failure um and so what i'd what i'd like to see more like and i think there's also a bit of a narrative sometimes that comes from the venture landscape that like this must be your everything you know like you know you're not investable unless this is your life's work like you know and i i don't i don't believe that um and i believe that there is a rising um subculture to that that sort of style of of thinking about building startups, which is like this maniacal obsession, you know, with like racing and winning. And um, I think it's healthy for founders to have parts of their identity that are outside of their business, you know, whatever it is. So um, just to sort of take the edge off of that feeling of like, I have failed, you know, like there are so many other parts of you beyond your startup identity and nurturing those as best you can whilst you're on this crazy ride would, would be my wish for founders. Amazing insights. I could talk about both those things at length, but I, I'll leave it at that. Really appreciative of your time. Let's get a buddy system in place, hey? For founders, yes. Right? With a, a buddy that's like a few years ahead. I reckon that'd be amazing. Find a friend, you know. Find a friend. Um, look, you know, um, yeah. So look, thank you so much for coming. Wonderful insights. Um, you know, one of the great leaders of the community and, you know, friend of mine now, I think we can say, I hope we get to work together uh, for a long time, uh, doing our best to build the Australian ecosystem um, and the, and the global ecosystem. Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's go big. Uh, a lot of Aussie startups are going big, going global. So we should all be thinking that way. Uh, and we're a global community. So look, thanks for joining today. Really appreciate your time. Incredible insights. Absolutely love what you and Euphemia are doing, um, having a huge impact uh, on, on ecosystem and the planet. So thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Jason. If people want to learn more about Euphemia, they can just go to euphemia.com uh, or they can uh, look for us on socials. Most of our handles are Euphemia Invest. Yes. Good. Thanks for that. Good point. I forgot to do that. Thanks, Jason. All right. Nice one. Um, thanks, everyone. Bye.